morning. So as uh, Rod was saying, we're going to commence our studies in uh, John's Gospel for the first time uh, this morning. So let me invite you to turn to John chapter 1, and we'll read the first few verses. John chapter 1, and verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now if we turn over to chapter 20, We've been reading from what is known as the prologue. We're now going to go to what is known as the epilogue to John's Gospel. John chapter 20 and verse number 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts. So we have absolutely no difficulty understanding what the purpose and point and objective of John writing his gospel is. We've just read that. This is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing that you might have life in his name. So that seems to me a pretty good title to have as our general heading over the whole study, Belief in the Son of God. That's the whole point and purpose of every message that will be spoken, that all of us might come to that point of of belief. It might surprise you to know that the word belief is used round about 100 times in the, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. So it is clearly a very fundamental point. Let me just give you a couple of examples of that. If you look down at chapter 1 and verse number 7, talking about John the Baptist, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Down at verse number 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And there are another 98 beyond that, which we won't go through just now. So just to make that particular point. And then secondly, to make the point that He is highlighted very clearly as the Son of God. If you look down at verse number 14, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And many examples beyond that particular verse as well. In fact, the Gospel of John is structured largely around about the revelation of Christ as the Son of God. 
And part of the way that that is done is by seven straightforward, important statements and claims that the Lord Jesus Christ makes about himself, where he says, I am. You know, the the famous I am statement, seven of them. And so, for instance, he will say that I am the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, chapter 10. He will say, I am the door. He will say that I am the light of the world. Now, these are more than just descriptions. There is much more to that. By saying that, he's borrowing from the background of how God himself describes who he is to Moses back at the burning bush. Who are you? I am that I am. I am the self-existent one, the continual being in the present tense. I am. And that is what the Lord Jesus is actually saying when he makes these statements. He's not just saying, here is an illustration of what I'm like. I am like a good shepherd or I am like the light of the world. He's saying, I am. And by saying I am, he's taking upon himself the title of deity. That's why John's gospel is written, that we might come to belief in the Son of God. And so what he does here is he takes these um, I am statements, helps to structure his gospel round about that, and in addition to that, he takes seven signs that are specifically selected and chosen. You remember that reading from chapter 20 said, and there were many other signs that Jesus did not included in this book. He selects seven of them in particular, specifically to highlight the points that he's trying to bring us to as far as belief is concerned. So for instance, uh, number one, because part of the message today is just to give you a bit of an introduction um, before we get into the first five verses. Uh, the very first one of the signs is in chapter 2. And chapter 2 has to do with the, the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when water is turned into to wine. Now, if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, it says there what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and here we have it, and his disciples believed in him. And so there are seven of these that run through the course of, uh, of the entire book. So, for instance, if you went to chapter 4 and verse 54, it concludes the second of the signs, which is the healing of the nobleman's son. And it concludes it by saying, this was the second sign. Jesus performed. And there are seven of these, as well as the seven I am statements. And so this is part of the way in which the book of John is, is structured uh, for us. Now, John's gospel is his own unique, particular portrait of Christ. Of course, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that also give their own portraits, written for a different audience, a particular emphasis given by them. John has his own, and John's gospel is uniquely different from the other three, which are known as the synoptic gospels. Um, 
90%, I was surprised to learn this as I was preparing, 90% of the material that we find in John's Gospel is unique to John's Gospel. You don't get it in any of the other Gospels. There are certain points that he includes, there are certain things that he leaves out, and he does it for a reason. And so, for instance, there is no genealogy of Christ recorded. There is no birth narrative of Christ recorded. The temptation of Christ is not recorded. The transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, and many other they are not included. And we're going to see that as far particularly as the birth narrative is concerned, he doesn't do that because he's coming from a different angle as he introduces Christ in his portrait. The particular angle that he gives is what we might call a heavenly one. He's presenting the Son of God. And he's giving us an insight into the profundity and into the glory and into the greatness of someone who came from heaven. And that's why he he starts off the way he does about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and us beholding his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so it's important for us to see that. Another point about John's Gospel is there are lots of long discourses, explanations, talks that the Lord Jesus gives that are not recorded anywhere else. And and you can see the sequence of events and the structure to all of that. So for instance, if you went to chapter 6, this is just as an example, there's a miracle which actually is in all four of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. But on the back of that miracle, where bread is broken and 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 the crowd are fed, Jesus announces, I am the bread of heaven. And he gives a lengthy discourse. That chapter has actually 71 verses in it where he talks and explains and develops this whole idea on the back of that miracle, which was a visual aid to introduce the point of the fact of what it means for Christ to be the bread of heaven. And that if people eat of him, that is spiritually, they receive Christ spiritually as Savior, they will will live forever, they will have eternal life. And of course we understand as we'll go through John's Gospel that eternal life is not just in the way that most people think about it, living forever and ever in an old people's home. You know, it doesn't mean that at all. It talks about the life of Christ, the quality of that life which involves forgiveness and being a child of God and how eventually that will lead into the fullness of life in heaven in the presence of Christ forever. Eternal life as we sang with the children, should not perish, but have eternal life. One of the other key points of John's Gospel is um, what we call the upper room ministry from chapter 13 through to chapter 17. It's a very intimate time. It's actually the night of his betrayal, the night before the death of Christ. So when you think about it, from chapter 13 right away through to chapter 21, a third of the book is given over to to just a couple of days. 
You know, as the focus is on the death of Christ. One of the ways in which you can date the chronology, actually, of John's Gospel is by the mention of the different festivals, particularly the Passover. So the Passover was what they were celebrating at the, um, in the upper room. There are another couple of them mentioned during the course of the book. When Jesus, intimately with his own, you know, reveals his heart. And there's that tremendous prayer of Christ as well uh, in chapter uh, 17. The author of the book, um, John, interestingly, his name is not mentioned once. Uh, within the book. He refers to himself in another way. He's, uh, he's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the disciple who reclined on the bosom of Christ uh, during uh, the upper room ministry and at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And so we learn something about this man who was a fisherman, who was known as the son of Zebedee, along with his brother James, who also had a nickname, he was also known as the son of thunder because he was pretty hot-tempered. And on one occasion, initially, you know, he wanted to call down fire from heaven on opponents of Christ. But what uh, he changed to was the disciple of love. The disciple who really appreciated, probably above and beyond the rest of them, something about the quality and the depth of Christ's love for him. A man who was changed from a son of thunder to, to the disciple uh, of love. And it's, it's John who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us this, this profound gospel, this heavenly portrait of the glorious person of the Son of God, so that we might have belief in him. And by having belief, receive eternal life. And so, that's by way of general introduction. And we come now to the first few verses then of, of, of chapter 1 that introduces the Lord Jesus Christ and introduces him in a rather unusual way. Why doesn't he just say, I'm now going to give you my portrait of Jesus of Nazareth. This is what I saw. This is what I learned about him. Here we go. He doesn't do that. What he does instead is introduce him by using another term when he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word. Now, this isn't talking about literature. You know, it's not saying that the most important thing is vocabulary and language. This is a title of the Son of God. This is a title of the Lord Jesus. Why does he use this? Why does he particularly choose to use this terminology? Two reasons. The first reason had to do with Greek thought at that time. You see, the Greeks, the non-Jews, had this concept that there was an overriding kind of wisdom and purpose that kind of held the universe together. It was a kind of energy source type of thing. A power that almost explained everything. It wasn't a personal thing. It was just some impersonal type of thing. But that's how they looked at life. That's how they looked at the world around them. That's how they tried to explain it. And, and John fastens on to something that is known in the culture, the way that people think. But what he does is say this. Yes, there is a word, logos, you know, which was what the Greeks used. But this word is a person. 
Not impersonal. There is a person who is the overarching principle and wisdom and purpose that is behind everything. And I am now going to tell you about him. He is the word. Second reason, he latches on to something that was in Jewish thought. And when the Jews used the word of God, they understood that when the prophets, for instance, spoke and said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, that when they did that, and when they had the scriptures, the written word, that this was a revelation of God himself. It wasn't just the fact that this man Jonah or whoever spoke as a mouthpiece, but it was the word of God that came through them. And he, he uses that background and concept to again get the attention of Jewish readers. And of course, one of the great passages, if you want to read this later, in Hebrews chapter 1, brings this alive. Where it says that in the past, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers different times, variety of ways, by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken unto us through his Son. His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. What he's saying is this, when he's introducing this now. God is speaking in the fullest possible way. He is the Word, the complete revelation and description of God. If you go down to verse number 18, if you look at the last um, clause there, it says, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So, what John is portraying for us is, we look at Christ, he is the Word, the absolute description and expression of the fullness of God. Now, if you were to walk a hundred yards down the road today, around the corner to the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you will read in their own translation something quite different in John chapter 1 verse 1 than we have here. Because the way that they translate that is, in the beginning was a word. A word. Let me say to you unequivocally, there is absolutely no doubt, especially as we follow down the reading here, that we're not talking about one word among many. We're talking about the unique, final, full expression of God. The uncreated word, unformed word, the eternal word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a description and title of of his deity. There's a very interesting point. I think I've made this point before. Um, it's a contrast in this chapter. Uh, if you go further down uh, the chapter, verse 23, John the Baptist is introduced. People can't make head nor tail of John. They ask him who he is. They wonder if he's maybe the Messiah. And what he says is this, no, no, I, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? That in the space of a few verses, there's a contrast between the word and a voice. You know, a voice is just the mechanism by which the words come. The word is the thing. John was a great man, 
tremendous guy. But he said, you know, I'm nothing compared to the one who comes after me, who was before me, existed before me. He is the word. Now, there are three things that I would like to say to you about the word. And um, the first one is this. These are not unique to me. I I came across them as I was preparing. I thought they were very helpful, these headings. Um, And I thought I I would use them this morning. The the first of the things I would like to say about Christ, who is the eternal word, number one, is that he is pre-existent. Pre-existent. Now let's just go through this, verse number one. In the beginning was the word. Now what, what is being stated here is this, that in the beginning which of course takes us right away back to the book of Genesis, the first books in our Bible, when God created the heaven and the earth, he already was. You see that? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was there. In fact, in Genesis 1, God spoke and the Word, the the universe was created. And in a sense, that's taking us to the, to the point that the active agent, if we might use that terminology, in creation is the Lord Jesus Christ. God spoke and the world came into being and existence. He already existed at that point. And as such, is designated as God. Now, this point actually could not be said or stated any clearer in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God I mean it can't be any clearer than that the deity of Christ the word was God verse 1 John sets his stall out absolutely clearly you know and it is for all of us this morning to come to the point of understanding and belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, of course, maybe it would be more accurate for us to put up there that he is God the Son. I'm going to get to that bit in a minute. Because sometimes this whole idea of biology clouds our thinking, as it does many people when you talk about the Son of God and the Father begets a Son. And of course, that's not the point. The point is the second one that I'm going to make here. And it's not just the fact that he is pre-existent, but that he is co-existent. Now, again, this is verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And then this strange couple of phrases. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, how can that be? How how, how can you be God and yet at the same time be with God? Surely that doesn't make sense. Being God and yet being with God. Well, what this is pointing to, of course, is the truth of the Trinity. The tri-unity. The Godhead. The fact that in his complexity and in his glory, the one God can be distinguished as three persons. Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. And that's, that's the way in which we understand the Lord Jesus, the eternal word, as the Son. He is God who is the Son, the revealer of the Father, which is what we have here. And in fact, there's an interesting way in which verse 18 in the authorized version uh, describes it. If you have the, the old authorized, it says at the end of that verse, the son who is in the bosom of the father, he has revealed him. Eternally, even when he was on earth, the son is united and one and in the bosom of the father. He is co-existent, part of the triune Godhead. Pre-existent, co-existent, and then finally, self-existent. Now, I'm taking this one uh, partly from uh, verse 3 and 4. Look at verse 4. In him was life. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Now, what we have to understand as we look at John's tremendous introduction and his portrait of the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying to us is this. He is self-existent. He is the source of life. Nobody conferred life upon the Son of God. He always had life. In fact, he is the life giver. In him resident is life. And the very fact that the creation is now described in verse 3 when it says, you know, and it's leaving nothing to chance because it's stated both positively and negatively, through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. So he is the life giver. He is the life creator. And as such, he is out with creation. He is outside of creation. He is the source of life. In him is life. Self-existent. There's a great verse in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, um, which really develops this idea just a little bit further where it says that all things were created by Christ, whether things in heaven or on earth. Now you just think of all the various types of angelic beings that we see in Scripture. Christ created everything in heaven as well as everything on earth. And then it says he created things that are visible. We get that. And things that are invisible. Now that means that there are structures and processes and authorities and that whole dimension of life that was set up and is sustained as well as being created by Christ. Because it says that whether they are powers or rulers or authorities, everything was made by Christ and for Christ. That includes you. That's why you were made. For Christ. You were made by Him and for Him. And the big question, of course, for all of us is, 
Am I living for Christ? That's the reason that I have been given life, is that I might live for him. Do I live my life with the belief in Christ that John wants to drive us to? Making this pronouncement from my own heart and confession that I do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And just as we close, I want to just say something about his description as the light of all mankind. In a sense, life and light are connected together. In him is life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Now this ties in with the idea of the word again. Light reveals. You know, if you have a dark room and you just shine a little bit of light into that, it lights it up. The darkness doesn't swallow up the light. The light exposes the darkness. The light is more powerful. And Christ comes as the light into the darkness. You know, it said that actually about Galilee, where he began his public ministry. The land that sat in the region of darkness has seen a great light. Christ was there. And he presents himself to us as the light of our world. That whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ is the light that that tells us about truth, tells us about spiritual reality, tells us about God, Not in the terms that we think we understand God, but in terms of who He really is. In true terms. Teaches us about our fallenness and about our human condition. He shines a light on all of that and of the way of salvation and rescue. And the greatest light, paradoxically, that ever shone was at the cross. Of the Lord Jesus. Hours of darkness you say. Yes physically. But that's the greatest light. There's an old hymn. That I love. And and here's one of the verses of it. It says this. It's in thy cross Lord. That we learn. What thou. In all thy fullness art. There through the darkening cloud discern. The love. Of thy devoted heart. That's the light. It shines. God is love. You know. And God has come into the world. To dwell with us. In the person of his son. So that we might know. His salvation. And the tremendous promise. Verse 5. The darkness will not overcome this. Praise God. Sometimes we wonder. Sometimes we see the darkness all around us, the opposition, the rejection of the gospel and of Christ himself. The darkness ultimately and eventually, it will never overcome the light of the gospel of Christ. We can hold on to that, hang on to that point. So here then is John's introduction, his uh, part of his prologue. As he introduces to us the eternal word. The pre-existent, co-existent, 
self-existent Son of God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt with us. And it is for us to believe in the Son of God, to behold His glory, and by believing, find eternal life in His name. That's the challenge. That's where John's Gospel wants to bring us every time. Now shall we pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book. We thank you for the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we make our prayer that our hearts might be captivated by his glory, that we might bow our hearts in worship and wonder before him, that we might receive the light of the world to dispel the darkness that is within us. Help us to come, every one of us, to the point of wholehearted belief in the Son of God today as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.